Well, it's an exciting time of year. We are preparing for the celebration of our Lord's birth. And so this is a Christmas message, but a little bit different than uh, just the normal uh, opening up of the story. We'll do that on the day before Christmas. That's the plan to have a really good uh, time of celebration of the Lord's birth. But today what we're going to be doing is looking at how to celebrate a holiday as an evangelistic embassy of the kingdom of God. Our key passage to start off, there'll be many passages, but key passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. And our key word for the children and others who may be keeping track of how many times I say the key word, the word is hospitality. So if you got your pencil out, I'll give you a few right now. Hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. So there's three right there off the bat. But if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness You are a good, good Father. And Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. And we ask you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the wondrous things that are there in your word. May we come away from this Sunday morning equipped for the ministry of hospitality. Lord, may we see with new eyes how important this doctrine truly is. And may we be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16, I'm only going to show you 11 and 12 in this slide. But we read there that Paul writes, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, why did he give these? It tells us, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I I just want to point out the fact that Carly did a a wonderful job in using the open mic the way it's intended to be used. They just want to, you know, there's your role model right there. So you don't have to be afraid, okay? Just when the Lord gives you something that you believe will edify and comfort and encourage us from God's word, uh, please come and share it. And don't be afraid to adjust the mic as needed in order to get it to point in the right direction. But if we can learn to do this well, we will be an edified church. We will be 
encouraged by the body life of the church. It's important to have a strong ministry of the word in the pulpit of the church to be able to open up God's word in an exegetical way. But we are intended to be a body in Christ and we are intended to build one another up by sharing what the Holy Spirit uh, impresses upon our hearts and minds. So thank you, Carly, for that. But the ministry here today is intended to be an equipping of the saints message, okay? An equipping of the saints to fulfill the purpose of God. And today's attempt to equip the saints of Gracious Cross for the work of the ministry of hospitality is focused specifically on the Christmas holiday season. We have opportunities during this time of the year that we do not have in other times of the year because the whole community, both within and outside of the church, is focused upon this season of celebration, whether they realize it or not. Now, as you've seen in the past, I like to refer to strawberries as an example of the goodness and the wisdom of God. Strawberries are excellent, okay, when they're ripe, uh, when they're picked at just the right time, these things are, not only are they looking good, not only are they tasting good, they are also good for you. And therefore, we can see in a strawberry an example of how God works. He's both good and wise. He doesn't just have good intentions, he also has the best possible means of accomplishing those good intentions in our lives. And it is an important thing for us to expect the will of God for our lives to be both good and wise. He's not an impractical God. He's not holding uh, a club over the top of us saying, you've got to do this no matter how miserable it makes you. He has arranged for almost everything that is a part of his will to, to be a source of great joy and, and pleasure to rejoice in. There will be times in which we suffer for Christ. But even in our suffering, there's a deep comfort that comes. He tells us, rejoice when you're persecuted because you, you are standing shoulder to shoulder with the prophets of the Old Testament. And so I want to impress upon you as a pastor Expect God's will for your life to be both good and wise. Now, what is God's plan? What is he doing in the world? You know, we, we are a Reformed church. And the tendency of the Reformed churches, the, the Calvinistic churches, is to become fatalistic. We have a tendency to become academic, to, to have all kinds of knowledge in our heads and yet not have our hearts warmed by the truth of that Word of God. And so the challenge for us as Reformed Baptists, right, that's what we are, uh, is to allow ourselves to have a rock-solid foundation of sound doctrine upon which to live a life of joyful 
enthusiasm to where we are not only right in our doctrine, but we're also right in our attitude. And we look at the world as a place that God has assigned to us responsibilities that are very important. So let me walk you through a few theological uh, realities that I hope will impress upon you the importance of our topic here today. God's plan is to redeem a special people who are zealous for good works. As we see in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, as we saw in the last few messages, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why did he do that? That he might redeem us, buy us back, pay our debt, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Okay? So look at that phrase, zealous for good works. A special people zealous for good works. We could say that's the bottom line right there. All of this that's going on with Christ redeeming us from our sins is in order to have and purify for himself a special, his own special people, zealous for good works. His plan is to save a special people who believe God enough to be careful to maintain good works. And so we see in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. So you can't be too repetitive about this. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So whatever Paul has in mind here, whatever the Holy Spirit has in mind here, he's, he's capturing it in this phrase, good works. And we're not only to do good works once in a while, we are to maintain good works. This is a way of life. Not a once in a while we might do something, but rather embracing an entire way of life. But there's one more important aspect to God's plan I want to point out before we dive in. His plan is to have a special people who are in this world, but not of this world. Now, Jesus explains this in his high priestly prayer to his father prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. And he says in John chapter 17 in verse 14 or verse 4 through 18, a long passage, but we'll look at this part of it. He says, I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, those who were to be his apostles. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now I want to point out the prepositions in this passage. The word of shows up 
a lot. Okay? When you are of someone or something, you are the result of that someone or something. You know, these are the children of this family. This is the wife of that man. So there's a relationship there. And when you enter into that relationship, you are of that. And so he says, these, my people that you've given me, are not of the world. They're not the result of the world's activity. Just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is not the result of the world's activity either. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now I love this passage because it lays the theological foundation for the entire idea that I'm going to share with you next. How does this work? How can we be in the world without being of the world? What kind of relationship allows that to work? How can we be a people zealous for maintaining good works in a world that hates us and that doesn't want us to even be here? How do you engage with somebody who hates you? Well, the answer is found in being an ambassador. Now, this is a picture that I found of some medieval ambassadors. Okay? These, are, these are ambassadors in the Middle Ages. And, and what I want to point out, and I want the kids to look up and see this picture, okay? Do you see this picture? What do you notice in this picture? Do you notice that they've got cool hats? They've got cool clothes. This one guy over here has got fur, you know, on his, and he's got a nice medallion. But look at what's on the table around them. It's kind of unusual. They've got a globe there. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. There's a musical instrument there. Why would a musical instrument be there? These are ambassadors. Now, by understanding what a, an ambassador is, an ambassador is by definition in but not of the country that he's been assigned to. He's not dependent upon that country to provide for him. That's provided by the country that sent him, his own country. And he's there to represent the country that sent him. And it doesn't really matter whether the country he's living in likes him or not. He, he's, he's there as an official officer of the nation that sent him. But why all the cool stuff? Do you kids have any idea why that might be? He's not just there as an official to, like a diplomat who's going to, you know, communicate during times of conflict and war, although he does do that, and that's important. But when there's not a war going on, He's going to be involved in negotiating with the country where he is for there to be a cultural exchange. Now, that's a big phrase, but let me explain what it means. It means he's there to showcase how great his country is, right? 
And, and if his country is, has great music, then an ambassador is going to have some instruments. He's going to be, he may even have a concert hall in, in order to present the beautiful music and maybe the plays and, the, and, and other performances, the dance performances of his nation. An ambassador is an officer, but his responsibility is not only to be a diplomat, but also to be a means of cultural exchange so that the nation that he's been assigned to will be able to understand how great and glorious his own country is. Now, if we can buy into that idea, it puts the responsibility that Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 into perspective. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our intent is to bring people into a peace relationship with God rather than being warring enemies. And in order to do that, we've got to communicate to the people that we've been sent to that God doesn't hate you. He sent his son to die for you. There is a way for you to be at peace with God. And for you, not only for you to be at peace with God, but for you to leave your country and come and live in mine. Come and be transferred into the kingdom of God that I represent. And there are many different ways in which we do that. We have to understand what it means to be an ambassador for Christ and how that affects the way we live in this world. So, this gentleman, this is Terence P. McCauley, he was at one time the U.S. ambassador to Nigeria. Now notice, he's well-dressed. He's got a nice suit jacket there, a nice tie, photographs taken with a flag behind it. This is an official photograph of this ambassador. And I, I point this out in order to say that if you're going to do the work of an ambassador, then you have to think about letting go of what you like in order to be most effective in reaching the people you've been sent to reach. And that's why I could go in all kinds of places, but one verse I, I could go to is where Paul says, I have become all things to all men in order that by all means I might win some. Right? So an ambassador is not going to say, well, I don't like to wear a tie. <laughs> if a tie is the most appropriate way to reach the people you've been sent to reach, then put on the stupid tie. Right? Don't let that something like that interfere with your ability to reach the people you've been sent to reach. Now, going the other way, if wearing a tie is an obstacle to you being able to reach the people you've been sent to reach, then take off the stupid tie. Because, you see, we're not here to make a fashion statement. We're here to connect with people, people who need Jesus, people who may listen to us a little bit more openly if we are dressed in a way that doesn't offend or put them off or make them feel ashamed or, you understand? Now, is there a dress code at Gracious Cross Community Church? Yes, there is. <laughs> there is a dress code. And that dress code is dressed in such a way as to make everybody around you comfortable. If you dress up too much, 
you make people feel ashamed that they didn't have that nice of clothes to wear. If you come in too sloppy, they're going to wonder who, what they've wandered into as well. So maybe business casual would be our dress code, you know? The idea of looking like you care about how you look, but not like you are proud of how you look. Just dress in a way that puts others at ease. Does that make sense? No, I wouldn't call that so much a dress code as I would say it's a dress attitude. Okay? And so let's have that. But let's take a look here. An ambassador is an officer of diplomatic and cultural exchange, as I've said. An ambassador represents his nation to a foreign nation by displaying the, quote, glory of his own nation. What are we supposed to do? You do all that you do for the glory of God. You are here to be a part of the display of his glory, just as an ambassador would want to put the best foot forward for his nation uh, when he's serving in a foreign country. Now, much of this type of ambassadorial responsibility is accomplished through the simple act of hospitality. You know, we, we sometimes think of an ambassador as just always being in some kind of meeting, right? Being in a business meeting, being in a conference or something. But the reality is, if you go, if you go and visit an embassy in Washington, D.C., there is a calendar of events that will just make you dizzy. Because there are going to be all kinds of, of uh, it, there are museum uh, rooms in the embassy that display art. And there will be tours of that art. There will be concert halls where you can come and listen to a, 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 a work of art uh, from the nation that that embassy represents. There will be one banquet after another. You're talking about a kitchen that is really superb and the meals are going to often be the meals that are most famous and popular from the nation that that embassy represents. And so you have this embassy with this constant activity of inviting people over constantly. Come over to my embassy and let me show you just how great our country is. Now, we have been commissioned by Christ for this very thing. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, we read, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. So how much authority is left over? None. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so with that authority, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Don't leave anybody out. Go and make disciples within every nation around the world because when it's all done and Jesus returns, there will be in heaven and on the new heavens and the new earth, there will be those who come from every tongue and tribe and nation, not only at one particular point in time, but throughout all of human history, there will be representative from every tongue and tribe and nation. And God sovereignly will accomplish that by sending his people into different places to be ambassadors for Christ, missionaries. 
So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, so this discipling process involves doctrine. It involves explaining who God is and what God is like, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and that would include this great commission, right? So everyone you win to Christ becomes an ambassador for Christ. Don't think that this is just for the disciples and the apostles in the first century. This is Christ's commission to you. You have this responsibility. You're in the family room of God. You are in the kingdom of God. You have official responsibilities to fulfill. And God is going to accomplish these, these uh, opportunities, these obligations in ways that are both good and wise. God has come up with a way for you to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness in ways that not only will do the world good, but will also do you good. It will do your family good. It will do your marriage good. It will do your kids good. It's good all the way through. And it's God's plan and purpose that you would enter into this commission with great enthusiasm. No higher authority can countermand this commission. Now, I want to warn you, they can't refuse you, but they can kill you. <laughs> okay? There's a difference. Uh, you go to North Korea, and you say, I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to your nation. And they say, you're not allowed to do that. We, 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 will, we do not give you the authority to come into our country. And our response, if we're truthful, is you have no authority to stop me. Yes, you have the power to arrest me. You have the power to abuse my rights but you do not have the authority to countermand this commission that I've received because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ and he has sent me to you. So do what you will as many missionaries and evangelists throughout church history have suffered and many have died, but they had the authority to do what they did. They had the authority to bring those Bibles into those communist nations, whether the communist nations liked it or not. We have all authority behind us to do what Christ has commanded us, but we are to do so in ways that are effective. You know, we are, we are not intended to just go throw ourselves off a cliff for Jesus. We're intended to go as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. To be able to think through, how are we going to get this done? How can we reach the most people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that allow them to come to faith in Christ without it all being over in just a few seconds as we confront the North Korean soldiers, right? So I'm not telling you, go get killed. I'm saying, go be an apostle. Go be an, an evangelist. Go do the work of an evangelist. And if it happens that you suffer for righteousness sake, rejoice. Because that is a wonderful privilege. 
Now, an ambassador, as an ambassador, we get to manage our own household as an embassy. This is not complicated. If you are, in fact, an ambassador and you live somewhere, then wherever you live, that is your embassy. And your embassy is an embassy of the kingdom of God in this world. And it's provided for by God. You say, well, he's not doing a very good job because my embassy is kind of a small little efficiency studio apartment. But you know you're ideally suited to reach a bunch of people who also live in tiny little studio apartments. Think about it. If you, if you put a big mansion in the middle of a slum, that's not a very effective embassy. But if you live in the same kind of situation as the people living around you, now you can reach out to them as neighbors and you can tell them the gospel and you can host them. You say, well, I'm homeless. I don't even have a place. Well, do you have a tent? Okay, do you have a campfire? There's your embassy. Use whatever, whatever circumstances God has provided for you as a place to practice hospitality. Somebody comes along, they're cold, and you say, hey, have a seat by my fire. And you share the gospel. See, let, let's not get confused with wealth. Now, if you are going to reach somebody in a wealthy neighborhood, you're probably not going to want to live in a tent in front of their house. Right? That's probably not effective. But what you can and often will do, God will prosper you in order to, to have ambassadors for Christ in wealthy neighborhoods. He does that. You say, I don't understand why God's blessed me so. I just, you know, I have more than I need. I've got this nice house. I've got this beautiful place. What am I supposed to do? You are ideally suited to be an ambassador for Christ in that particular quality of neighborhood. And by giving yourself to practicing hospitality, you are going to be able to share the gospel with people who God has already chosen to save. They're out there. And so you can always, you know, it's, it's like hunting with a tag that says you cannot lose. You will get something, okay? You're, you're, you're going to, huh? You are going to win. This is going to work. God has already chosen to save some. Go find them. And they will come to Christ. And so our home can be one of the primary places where we maintain our good works as faithful ambassadors for Christ. Now here, here's a picture of my beautiful embassy that Luke has just finished painting. So there it is. See those stripes up there in the corner? I love that. Luke did that. Uh, and so um, this is our noble inn in Silverton. This is our embassy of God's kingdom in Silverton. And we are making every effort to practice hospitality aggressively. You know, we are having people over constantly, sometimes just momentarily, you know, and sometimes for a more extended period of time. But practicing hospitality is a command. So just to make it clear, this is not a suggestion from God. Okay. Romans 12, 13 says you're to be given to hospitality. Okay, not just once in a while, but given to it. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says an overseer, that's an elder or, or, or pastor, is to be hospitable. That's one of the requirements of being uh, an overseer, elder. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, if a widow 
This is a widow who needs to be put on the support of the church. And there's a requirement that these widows not be having, uh, living a, a uh, immoral life, that they're serving, they're washing the, the, the feasts of the, of the saints. That means serving them in every way that they need. And it says that she's to have shown hospitality to strangers. We've been convinced by our culture that, you know, stranger danger, be careful, you don't know this person, they might be an axe murderer. They're probably not. We are encouraged by our media to be afraid of one another. Now, I'm not saying there aren't dangerous people out there, but that's why God made parents, okay? There are parents who can make sure their kids stay safe, and you need to do that, parents. But that doesn't cancel the commission to practice hospitality. That doesn't say, oh, I don't need to do this. The weakest and most vulnerable person in society is required to show hospitality to strangers. So what about the rest of us? This is something God commands. It's not an option. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, but hospitable, loving what is good. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by some, by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He probably has Lot and his uh, situation there in Sodom uh, in mind, where he brought these men into his home, and they were angels. We don't know when we meet somebody whether they are uh, just another human being or an angel. Think about that. Sometimes you meet somebody and they, they may not look nice, they may not smell nice, they may be a little uh, rough, and you think, wow, I don't know if I want to get to know this person, and that may be an angel. It's real. I believe this. And so beware not to insult angels. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint or without grumbling as it is in some translations. Why would Peter have to say that? Because when you practice hospitality, somebody's kid is going to pee on your couch. It's going to happen. You've got to get okay with that before it happens. Because when you practice hospitality, things get scratched. Things get dented. Things get spilled. You know, it's just, it's part of it. And so think of your, your home as being like, you know, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, right? Well, your house can bear in its body the marks of the Lord Jesus as well. As you just say, Lord, it's your couch. Uh, help me get the smell out, but yeah, it's your couch. And we're going to just keep on going. If you want a nicer home or a nicer couch, my advice to you is wear out the one you've got in hospitality. And God will see that and say, boy, these people are really going to town with this. I need to give them a bigger place. I need to give them a nicer place. I need to... Make sure they've got all that they need in order to keep going the way they're going. I love it. I love to see my people practicing hospitality, being zealous for good works. 
And God has a kingdom interest in prospering those who use what they have for the purposes that God intended. And it doesn't work the other way around. You don't say, Lord, I'll practice hospitality if you give me a nicer place. But rather, Lord, let me wear this place out. And if you see fit and if it would be of advantage, then give me a bigger place to serve in. My embassy has five guest rooms. And it comes uh, equipped with a, a wonderful cook. <laughs> and we are, honey, are we having fun? We are having fun. It's, it's work, but we are having fun. We're enjoying the goodness and the wisdom of God. All of God's commandments deliver real benefits to those who obey him. It's not just for the sake of those who are lost. It's also for the sake of those who are saved. You see, by giving you this commission, God is rescuing you from spending the rest of your life on things that don't matter. He is commissioning you to live your life in ways that will make an eternal difference. And if he had not given you this commission, you would probably waste your life on something much less important. And so thank him for giving you something to keep you so busy. And by giving you something to keep you busy, he keeps you out of trouble. Just as David, you know, he was supposed to be out fighting the battles. On, but when the kings are supposed to go to battle, David stayed home. And because he stayed home and he wasn't in the right place at the right time, he saw the wrong thing, got involved with the wrong person. And we have this horrible story of adultery and murder. And it all begins by not going to battle when you're supposed to go to battle. And so I would present to you the, the idea that when you say no to practicing hospitality, you are like David staying home when it's time for kings to go to battle. And you're likely to get involved in the wrong things and you're likely to regret it. Now God loves you. He's a loving, good, good father as we sang. But he will discipline his children when they disregard his word and disobey his commands. And this is a command. Your heavenly father for your good as well as the good of those who need to hear the gospel is commanding you to make your home an embassy of the kingdom of God. A place where others can taste and see that the Lord is good. Now a church given to hospitality uh, is a joy to behold. And we see it in the book of Acts. I'll just quote this short passage. In Acts 2, verse 46, And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Imagine what it would have been like to be there. How busy do you think you would be? 3,000 people just got saved, and you want to meet them all. And you're going to be practicing hospitality in an ongoing way. The early church was born into a culture of radical inclusiveness, generosity, and constant hospitality. 
it was not a commune. It was not coerced. There was no requirement. We know from the story of Ananias and Sapphira that when you own something, it's yours. If you sell it, the money is yours. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit about it. But the fact is, it's not a commune. It is a matter of radical and inclusive generosity, and that's what hospitality looks like. So why would a good and wise God require all of his people to be given to hospitality? It is because every person you meet is like a packaged gift from God. But that packaged gift is all wrapped up and ready to be opened in order to be discovered and enjoyed. You meet a new person, you just got a new gift from God. But the problem is, these gifts can only be opened up from the inside. People don't necessarily want you to get to know them. So how do we deal with that? People have to want us to get to know them. And the way that we accomplish that is by means of hospitality. Now if you'll uh, allow me for a moment to use some of my college education. <laughs> Can I do that? According to social scientists, and I want to say, not all scientists are your enemy, okay? There's a lot of really good scientists, not the Christian scientists. I'm talking about scientists who are Christians are out there, and they're, they're working to understand how God's world works. They're not evolutionists. They're not atheists. You know, sometimes we get the idea that everybody with a degree is somehow uh, the enemy. They're not. So here's some, some social scientists, and they have discovered through their studies that people have only two basic kinds of relationships, and it makes us very predictable. Now, we have secondary relationships. Those are referred to as acquaintances, and they exist in only one social context. Now, let me show you how this works. If you, say, work in a factory, and you work in that factory for 20 years, and in that factory you're standing right next to this guy, and you're talking and joking and getting to know one another, and so you know him in one social context, only at work. Maybe you go to company parties, maybe you go to company picnics, but you only see this guy at a company-related activity in his mind and in yours. He's an acquaintance. He's not a friend. Not yet. Now, the other relationship is a primary relationship. And a primary relationship exists in two or more social contexts. So let's say you see this guy you've been standing next to for 20 years. One day you see him at the Little League game. And you sit side by side in the stands and you watch your kids play, play baseball. Now something's changing. You now connect with this person in more than one social context and there's a much more likely, it's much more likely that he and you will begin to view one another as friends. Now, why is that important? It's important because people will only turn to their friends in a time of need. If you're driving along, now we've all got AAA now, and so it kind of messes up my illustration, but if you don't have AAA, you're driving down to the countryside, you get a flat tire, 
and you're right next to the house where the guy you stand next to at the factory works uh, lives, there's a very good chance you won't call him, even though he's right there, because he's an acquaintance. You'd feel like he might be offended if you ask him to do something inconvenient for you, because he's just an acquaintance. However, if you see this man in other contexts, like the Little League, and maybe you're both members of the, uh, one of the uh, civic organizations in town, and you know, things like that, and, and your car breaks down, and it's not too far from his house, you will call him. And the funny thing about this, they found the reason you will call him is because you're afraid he'll get mad if he finds out your car broke down and you didn't call him. That's how strong this is. When you have a relationship that begins to move into that category of a friend, all of a sudden we expect one another to open up and tell us what's going on in their lives. And that's what I mean when I say we, these people only open up from the inside. So by practicing hospitality, we can turn every acquaintance into a friend. Think about that. How many people do you know in one social context and they have never seen the inside of your home? If you were to invite them over for lunch, for dinner, for breakfast, whatever it might be, and it's unrelated to whatever the context is that you normally see them in, then there's a much more strong likelihood that they will open up to you and tell you what's going on in their lives, and that will give you the opportunity to pray with them about what's going on in their lives, and that will set the stage for you to share with them the, the, the good news concerning the one who answers those prayers about whatever is going on in their lives. And so God says, I've got a gift for you. And I want you to take the time to unwrap it. Open it up. Find out what's inside. And then love me. Love them for me. Practicing hospitality adds the second social context to every relationship. And when we add that second context to every acquaintance, our guests begin to see us as friends, and they open themselves up to us, telling about what is really going on in their lives. And this is how we can be the most effective ambassadors for Christ, by making acquaintances easily and turning acquaintances into friends and sharing our lives with those new friends and hoping and praying that they will share their lives with us. Now, being hosts rather than guests has other advantages as well. There is a natural deference that comes with being a guest in someone else's home. You know, we, we tend to... Uh, be careful about not going into other parts of the house without being welcomed in. Should I use this bathroom or that? You know, that type of thing. Uh, we don't say, hey, let's play Monopoly. No, we let the, we let the host suggest if we're going to play a game together, right? There's, this is natural. Am I the only one that's noticed this? 
I'm very deferential when I'm in somebody else's home. We naturally want to go along with our hosts. Now, when we are the guests in someone else's home, especially the home of an unbeliever, we can find it difficult to avoid participation in foolish and sometimes even in sinful activities. Now, I'm not saying you should never be the guest in an unbeliever's home, but I am saying be careful because they often break things out, turn things on, you know, things that you would not approve of in your own home, and not because you're some religious, uh, you know, legalist, but because you've got moral standards. And so the more often that you are the host rather than the guest, the more likely you are to be able to guide the activities, the social activities, in a way that is in keeping with your standards rather than theirs. As hosts, we get to use this social norm to our advantage. Now, by initiating our own hospitality, we have far greater opportunity to present the gospel to others with far less offense. Now, what I mean by that is, let's, let's say you're having some people over for Christmas, you know, not necessarily on Christmas Day, but you're having a Christmas party maybe for your neighborhood. And you get all of these couples and these families come to your house from around your house. And at some point in that time, with all the food and the festivities, you say, now, in our home, we like to celebrate the holidays by telling the story behind the holiday. And so since we're here to celebrate Christmas, a lot of people don't even realize what a wonderful story there is behind Christmas. And so I'd like to have all the kids gather up here at the front and I've got this wonderful book I'm going to maybe walk through and open the pages and, you know, tell the children the story at the heart of this holiday. We're going to talk about the wise men. We're going to talk about the shepherds. We're going to talk about Bethlehem and the little baby in the manger. We're going to tell the story of Jesus' birth into this world, and then we're going to explain, now this baby, this is his step, first step toward Easter. When this baby grows up, he's gonna live the perfect life that we were all supposed to live, but we haven't, and then he's gonna die for us in our place on a cross. And then, in order to prove that his death was accepted by God, God's gonna raise him from the dead. But in order for him to be there and do that, he has to start out here in a little town called Bethlehem. You see what we're doing? We're the host. This is what we do in our holidays. And this is for the children. And in fact, all the families are listening in as well. And they're maybe a little uncomfortable with this. But they're realizing, it's your house. I get to uh, defer to my host. And so you can share the gospel with less offense when you're doing it as the host, serving your guests in something that is perfectly normal, telling the story at the heart of the holiday. Now this could just as easily be Thanksgiving. It could be the 4th of July. It, it could be any number. It could be your wedding anniversary but you get to tell the story at the heart of the holiday. And you can stage it. You can ask people to turn off your phones and 
you know, shut that stuff down and sit down and gather here and let's turn them off so we don't have any ringing going on. And let us tell you the story of how we met. Let us tell you the story of Squanto and how he was such an important part of our nation's founding. Let, me, let us tell you the story. You see, it's not that complicated. Holidays are a wonderful way for us to fulfill our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ. Now, how do most people come to faith in Christ? Again, this is the work of Christian social scientists. They study this kind of thing in order to help churches do a better job. And here's what they've found. The pulpit ministry of a church is likely to lead to 4 to 7%. If it's a really good preacher, maybe 7%. Not so good, maybe 4%. People come to Christ through the pulpit ministry of the church. Now, church walk-ins. These are people who may be in trouble in some way, and they're just looking for help, and they come into the church as a walk-in. And it's not the pastor's ministry so much, it's just the church is there for them, and they hear the gospel, and they come to Christ. That's 4 to 6%. Sunday school ministry, that results in 4 to 6% of those who come to Christ. They hear the gospel through the Sunday school program. Special needs being met. This is when people are hungry or homeless or, or otherwise in need. And they turn to the church and the church responds with some generosity and they stick around to hear the gospel and they come to faith in Christ. 2 to 4%. Special programs. This would be putting on uh, singing Christmas trees, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Uh, uh, the pageants, plays, you know, choirs, anything like that. Special speakers. That's going to result in 2 to 4% of people coming to Christ. Home visitation. Going out into the neighborhood and meeting people in their homes, talking to them. That's a two, 1% to 2% results there. So, that is a total of 10 to 30% of all the people who come to Christ come by those means. So where do the other 70 to 90% come from? Because they are there. These are percentages. So there's another 70 to 90% of the people who come to Christ how do they do it? They are led to Christ through a relationship with a friend or a family member. If you want to improve your evangelistic success, then focus on that relationship with friends and family members. And by practicing hospitality, you increase the number of friends that you can share the gospel with. And more often than not, just to mention this, it is a friend or family member who invites a person to go to any of these other things where they hear the gospel. <laughs> so even the 10 to 30% is substantially affected by a relationship with a friend or family member who cares enough to invite them to do something.
Now, I don't know about you, but that excites me. Because all of these people out there in the world, they are all wandering around, many of them in the dark, not necessarily opposed to hearing the gospel, they just never get the chance. And we have been commissioned to reach out to them. And so that brings us finally to the the doctrine of hospitality. And there are basically six kinds of ministry hospitality. Okay? And they are mealtime, guest room, evangelistic, educational, holiday, and civic. And I could give you a message on all six of these, but I won't. Not this morning. But we will focus in on holiday hospitality just for a moment. Holiday hospitality is a wonderful opportunity to be zealous for good works. It's a chance for you to, whether you go out into your neighborhood, go Christmas caroling with, with Christmas carols that actually share the gospel, share the story of Christmas with people. Uh, these are the, uh, the kinds of activities that allow you to get to know your neighbors enough to invite them over sometime. You know, if you're in a neighborhood watch group, this is a, a good chance for you to host something in your home for your entire neighborhood watch group. If there are widows in your communities, single moms in your communities, this is a time to remember them, maybe with some groceries or some other, you know, things to make their holidays a little nicer. And again, to invite them over so that you can have a deeper friendship. But once you get people together, how do you properly celebrate that holiday? Well, I've already told you, but I'll tell you again. You tell the story at the heart of that holiday. And the best way to do that, telling that story at the heart of the holiday, and this is where the middle generation has to serve the other two generations, okay? So let's say you're a a middle-aged, you know, upper middle-aged, lower middle-aged family, and you've got kids, and you've got parents, and aunts and uncles and others like that, elderly people, and maybe this is people from your neighborhood as well. Well, you are that middle generation who, if you want to, if you decide to, you can set the stage for the older members of the group to tell the story to the younger members of the group, the story that's at the heart of that holiday. And I encourage you to to treat it that way. Now, don't hand off the storytelling to just anybody. It's got to be somebody who knows how to tell the story in an interesting and entertaining way and who includes ministry, gospel ministry, in that storytelling process. Okay, pointing to God, giving glory to God, honoring God. So this is a very precious position. You want to hand it off to somebody. It may be a grandparent. It may be a grandmother. It it may be an uncle or aunt. But you want to give it to the person who is most likely to do a good job telling the story at the heart of that holiday to the children. And you ask the parents to help keep tabs on their children so that no one or another of them is such a distraction that they keep everybody else from hearing the story at the heart of the holiday. We're being very intentional about this. And so, the goodness and the wisdom of God is seen in all of the additional benefits that come from practicing hospitality. So I'm going to close 
with this. By practicing hospitality, we get to enjoy a better quality of life in every way. Now, I kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek as I go through this, but not entirely. Because I have noticed when you practice hospitality, you have deeper friendships. I've mentioned that already. But I've also noticed that the house gets cleaned more often. Now, <laughs> Bonnie and I mistakenly thought we were having the shared meal at our house today. So guess what? We got a really nice clean house over there and no shared meal coming to our house today. But it's just wonderful how when you're practicing hospitality, you do things to get ready for it. And everybody gets the benefit of that. I'm living in a nice clean house. Now it was already really clean. Bonnie doesn't let the house get dirty. But it's just funny how, you know, she wants to make it nice for you. And in the process, it's nice for us. That's the goodness and the wisdom of God. So let's keep going. Things get fixed faster. If, uh, if something's broken and we're having guests, I try to get it fixed before the guests arrive. And then we get to live in a house where things get fixed. The same thing is true with the lawn. The lawn gets mowed more often when I'm having guests over. I like the lawn to look nice for my guests. You say, is that pride? No, it's an ambassador for Christ wanting to receive guests in an embassy of the kingdom of God. And so I think God cares whether or not I get out there and mow the lawn. Flowers show up. When, when it's in season, the vases get filled with beautiful flowers. I have a, I'm blessed with a bride, a wife, who, who is such a wonderful flower arranger, and she just loves to go out into the, and I've provided her with a cut flower garden, you know. Guys, get the hint here. Uh, so she's going out and she's cutting flowers and putting it in vases, and I get to enjoy the beauty of her art. Uh, and it happens most often when we're having guests. The baked goods appear in abundance. I live with a baker, and she is just amazing. The meals are more intentional. I'm not going to say they're better, but let's just say they're planned a little bit more intentionally. And the result is, is that the spread is just really amazing. I get to live in this embassy. I get to be a partner with this lady as we serve the Lord together as ambassadors for Christ. I find myself motivated to do the things I ought to do just for their own sake, but somehow I'm more motivated when folks are coming over. And I don't think that's an accident. I think God intended us to be practicing hospitality in such a way that we maintain the quality of our life in order to have a very nice life to share with others. And this is what we see in the Bible. And I just have to mention, the desserts are more amazing <laughs> when, when the guests are coming. So, everything improves when you just add guests, okay? And so think about it in that way. And as I said, this is partly tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. So let's make this Christmas season 
a time of evangelistic hospitality. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, we read, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now all these things that we do in order to serve our guests, they are physical. Meals, flowers, things like that. But that's not what Paul's referring to here when he says an opportunity for the flesh. The opportunity for the flesh he's referring to is sinfulness. It's indulging yourself in ways that are unhealthy, that are uh, unimpressive, that do not portray and display the glory of God and his intentions for these pleasures. And so don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your sinful nature but rather, through love, serve one another. So use your freedom under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to celebrate the Christmas holiday as an ambassador for Christ, practicing hospitality as an embassy of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this message will find good, good soil that the seeds will be planted, and that our lives will be forever changed as we take this responsibility to heart and begin to live as your ambassadors, allowing our homes, whatever they may be, to serve as embassies of your kingdom as we practice hospitality with an eternal purpose in view. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.